So we've opened to in-house during the day. So we're open Friday and Saturday for lunch um, out on the veranda, which as I you know, painted the picture is, is an absolutely beautiful space. However, on our first Friday of dine in outdoors on the veranda, it of course snowed for the first time in Talbot uh, for many, many years. Uh, it was quite surreal, yeah. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading back to the regions and we are chatting to Jane Newgreen from Talbot, Provador and Eatery. Jane has another business which is called Provenir, so we're going to talk about both of those things. In the light of recent announcements about the further easing of restrictions in Victoria, let's find out if they're going to make any difference at all to Jane and her business. First of all, welcome and how are you today? Hi Danny. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I'm going pretty well, thank you. That's good. Last time I spoke to you, you were in a paddock with a horse, but I suspect that is not the case right now. <laughs> no, I'm in my home office in front of the computer, um, but yeah, certainly that time away that I can get into the paddock with the horse is definitely my my bliss at the moment, my time out. So um, even if I'm, I'm chatting and, and doing business out in the field. Yeah, I imagine that would be so nice. I have certainly appreciated my dog immensely through everything that we've been going through in 2020. And I guess, you know, a horse would just be like a dog times about 20 because um, all that love, all that gorgeousness, and you can ride them as well. So, yes, um, in, my, in my next life, I'm definitely going to have about 20 horses. Um, but anyway, let's stay in this life for now. Jane, uh, there were some announcements about regional dining regarding an increase of numbers. So you're allowed to have up to 40 diners, but only 10 in each indoor space, plus an increase from 50 to 70 outdoors. Does that make any difference to you at Tal Talbot Provador and Eatery? Um, unfortunately, no, it doesn't make any difference to what we're already doing. So we've got our dining room, we've just got the single room. So we're still now limited to 10 diners indoors. And we've got a, an amazing um, north facing veranda, which stretches the length of our venue and looks out onto a, a beautiful ornamental and productive community garden. Um, and we've currently um, got seating there for 27, which is our maximum um, patron density. So despite the increases, um, we can't do anything more than what we're already doing. Yeah, and I suppose this brings me to something that I want to talk to you about today and that is about, you know, the way that you need to comb through the rules, work out what they mean for you and then communicate them to the people that uh, want to come and dine with you. Can you talk a bit about that and how that process has been for you through these this, this ever-changing landscape that we're in at the moment? Mm. Oh, look, I mean... Ourselves, my partner Christopher Howe and um, and I, together with our staff, um, you know, amazing bunch of people. We've got three staff on at the moment. Um, whenever there's been a, an announcement, you know, we're there listening to the press release and then, um, you know, combing through, as you say, the details that actually sit behind it. Um, you know, and there there often are um, a delay on the details and um, the headlines sometimes, you know put presumptions into customers' minds. Um, you know, we even had someone today asking, oh, you know, oh, now you can seat 20 indoors. And it's like, well, 
no, actually, we can't. Um, sure, that's the headline um, for Melbourne, 20 and, and regional, 40, but we only have one dining room. So, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's um, going to remain the same. So, of course, yesterday, um, Sunday, we spent probably an hour listening to the press conference and then another couple of hours sort of wading through, um, you know, and, and – um, getting information from yourself and, and the groups on Facebook and, and other means to really drill down into the detail and then meet with our staff and, and I mean, on this occasion nothing had changed. So, um, but, you know, often there's a meeting with staff afterwards to try to figure out, okay, what does it mean? Um, talk about everyone's interpretation. We've got some amazing people on our team that, you know, um, have diverse experience and, and bring a great wealth of um, their own knowledge to the table. So every time a, a change has happened, we've we've met with the team and then looked at um, what we can do, what we can't do, and, and what we want to do moving forward as well to ensure the um, longevity and success of the business. Yeah, well, let's pull back a little bit and just explain to us what the Providor was until... It, it had to be a whole bunch of other things as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So um, we're a, we call ourselves a Providor and Eatery. So that's what we are. Our focus um, in Talbot, we're located sort of north of Ballarat, um, south of Maryborough, a little bit north of Gloons, a lot of people are familiar with. Um, we're a town of around 400 people. Um, in town is our Providor and Eatery, the post office, the pub. There used to be a corner store which got closed down um, a little while back. So, um, you know, it's a tiny town. Um, one thing that it does have is an, an amazing or did have was an amazing um, farmer's market which attracts thousands of people to the town um, in the past. And um, so we built our business really based off um, supporting local producers in the area and um, providing an opportunity, like providing a place for local community to meet, to congregate, to have a meal. Um, our business is, um, I guess, in the past it was probably primarily an eatery with the Providor on the side. And we also have a regional wine store which focuses on um, a wine source from regions within 100 kilometres of Tolbert, um, which includes some pretty amazing um, wineries, vineyards, um, you know, in the Pyrenees region, Ballarat, etc. So um, we're in a pretty special place there. And um, so we've got uh, the indoor dining space, which um, the dining tables are surrounded by shelves laden with local produce, does. Um, jars of preserved fruits and olives and olive oil and rolled oats from um, Burrum Biodynamics and um, then outdoors on the veranda is um, you know just a beautiful space to sit and dine so that's what we were I guess um, we were essentially a dine-in place with takeaway coffee and the Provador store and wine store so operating a, a multifaceted sort of business which um, you know we we felt we needed to do given the locality and the, the size of the town. We um, had a really strong local customer base but then also attracted people from Melbourne and the regions to come and dine with us as well. Mm. And what would be a typical dish that someone might expect to have with you? Oh, <laughs> I think one of the most popular dishes, um, which was actually created by one of our past chefs, um, was the Thai son-in-law eggs. So um, local free-range eggs and he um, just 
it created a beautiful tamarind sauce that went with it and people would – it would be on the menu. Um, you know, initially it was actually served to us as a staff meal and as soon as Christopher tasted it, he is like, this is going on the menu and we could not get it off the menu. People just, you know, as soon as we tried to like change things up a little bit, they're like, where are the Thai eggs? So we've sort of <laughs> – we've moved on from that but that was definitely a dish that, um, you know, stood the test of time and people would have it for breakfast, they'd have it for lunch, they'd have it for afternoon tea, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a really popular one. But um, other, other dishes might be um, we love taking um, full um, cuts, like we, we'll buy full lambs from our local producer, um, Blackface Suffolk lambs at Glen Grenock Farm and break them down and then just do a beautiful braised lamb dish and for dinner and, and that type of thing. So really celebrating the local. Yeah. Sounds really good. Um, so how have you guys navigated your way through the pandemic? Um, well, I guess um, from the beginning, I guess, you know, we, we closed down and then immediately went to takeaway, which was something we had never done before. So, you know, that was a massive pivot and finding our feet, you know, like even the the little details, like within a week we needed to source all the all the containers and um I I managed to um within the space of a week get a online ordering form on the website and then um you know have people pick what time they could come in. So we were limiting the amount of people in the store at any one time and there were 10 minute time frame so we'd you know they'd they'd order pre-order online and we'd have their meals waiting for them so that you know we could um serve people and they they felt safe not having to be in the um the shop with lots of other people and of course sticking to the patron density requirements at that time and um then sort of in I guess in the middle where um we did have the opportunity to return to dining we probably took a little while to, to get to that stage. Um, there was a little bit of caution and trepidation there and and then also the process of, okay, how is this actually going to work? Um, and so we reopened to, to dine in on our Saturday evening dinners um, and did that for a couple of weeks and then got shut down again. <laughs> so um, that was really difficult. You know, we were I think three weeks into our first um, monthly dinner menu and, and that was all done. Um, so, so now we're back to um, dine in, but outdoors for us. So, um, because we have such a diverse space where people pop in for a coffee, um, pop in for takeaway, lunch meals, might browse the Provador and pick up a couple of items of local produce. You know, we stock um, milk and bread and and all the sort of staples, and um, and then the wine store because we're limited to 10 people within the space, um, we haven't introduced in-house dining indoors yet because as soon as we seat, for example, a table of five, then we we only can have five more people inside our venue. So it's really hard to to sort of navigate and, and manage that. Um, so we've opened to in-house during the day. So we're open Friday and Saturday for lunch um, out on the veranda, which as I you know, painted the picture is is an absolutely beautiful space. However, on our first Friday of dine in outdoors on the veranda, it of course snowed for the first time in Talbot uh, for many many years. 
Uh, it was quite surreal. Yeah. So crazy. It's like, welcome to outdoor dining, guys. And you just yeah, thrown into Absolutely. It. So we had people who had booked um, and they rang up and cancelled and I don't blame them, but then we had quite a few other people who were so determined to enjoy this opportunity. They sat there, they loved it, they thanked us and, you know, they were rugged up with their beanies on and it was, you know, I just felt so grateful that they um, they came along and they endured the weather and they were, they were in great spirits. So, <laughs> Yeah, oh, bless them. Um, Jane, as, as you're talking, you really get to understand how individual and personal all these regulations and restrictions are like it's you know the dining limit plays out so differently in different venues and it's not just about you know the square meterage it's about as you've as you've eloquently explained it's about the type of business that you're running and the other ways that you want to stay open and to serve your communities it's so it's so specific and you know you have to put so much thought into every permutation it's just just, I, I just just really feel for you with the energy that you need to put into all this decision making and I guess also just explaining and explaining and explaining and explaining to diners who are coming from their own lives and their own worlds their own understanding of the situations and and perhaps you know haven't put well certainly have not put as much time into thinking about it as you have I mean tell me how that's played out like how has the the communication gone for you with the people who do want to um, visit you as customers mm, yeah well I mean you you absolutely said it um, right Danny we have um, found not so much the hours that our store and Provador and eatery is open but all of the work that's going on behind the scenes the um, hours of wading through, you know, the regulatory requirements, changing processes behind the scene. It's it's been exhausting for us and our staff um, and, and emotionally taxing as well. You know, this this what what we're doing now is not what we set out to do. It's not why we're in the business, but we're holding on. Um, and look, you know, there's been great opportunity in this as well. Like the takeaway, I'd never we'd always said that we wanted to do it and we got a very big, you know, <laughs> motivational kick, you know, in the direction of making that happen within the space of a week. Um, and now it's, you know, a, a fixture that the community have embraced and, you know, love their Friday night takeaways. So we'll continue to do that. So, um, but with regards to, you know, the the constant change, um, what we've tried to do is remain as consistent as possible um, because part of it, as you noted, is the communication to the customers and um, every time you change hours or change offering that uh, requires more communication for our small community to understand what it is we're doing, when when and we're doing it. So while there has been changes, we've tried to limit the effect of that on what we're doing and when we make a decision it's it's really considered like I said we bring in our team to to talk about what we want to do moving forward as a as a whole and then we stick to it we don't want to we want to keep moving forward we don't want to step back so um we've had 
great support from the community. Um, we've recently opened to dine in um, for our Saturday evening dinners as well. So we can only seat 10, um, but we're doing that. And, um, you know, it's just been great to welcome people back into the space. And But then people, you know, hear the announcements and say, oh, so, you know, you, you're allowed to reopen. Are you going back to your usual hours, which we, we used to be um, operational Thursday through to Sunday? And it's like, well, no, we, we can't just flip back to that. You know, we're, we essentially can't have anyone indoors um, dining in during the day. We're 27 on the veranda, down from about 50. You know, that's a huge cut to what we could previously offer. So we can't offer the same thing. Most people are really understanding and, and they get it and you know, it might be an innocent question they haven't actually, you know, thought that much about. But once you say, well, no, actually we can't do this and, um, I mean, Sunday for us, you know, the, the um, would, would just be another challenge with, um, you know, the Sunday rates, penalty rates um, and the limitations on our offering at the moment. So it's something that, you know, we'd love to be able to offer as a business um, and, and to our local community, but we're still quite restricted in that way. So there's been a couple, yeah. There's been, I mean, you mentioned, you know, someone complaining they couldn't come in on a Sunday for coffee and cake and um, I guess it's can be hard to have those conversations with people that, you know, when you're in the business of saying yes to people, it's hard to have those to have those tricky conversations sometimes. Yeah, and and look, if we if we felt it, it was viable and you know the longevity of our business um, was sustainable to you know open the doors to more hours, then we would. But um, unfortunately, just at this time, we can't. So um, we're not going to be able to do that for now, and we're we're just taking it you know, one step at a time, hoping for the relaxation of greater um, of the restrictions to enable us to do that. But then there's also the sense within a small community of um, keeping our people safe as well. And, um, you know, there has been pressure on us in the other direction of, well, you know, the providors open, who who's coming and where are they coming from? So, um, and, and from our staff as well, from the safety of our staff perspective, we, we want to keep our staff safe there. You know, we don't have young staff. We have, you know, mature staff who, um, you know, are, are fully aware of the situation, are mindful of their own health. Um, we have many local community members who dine with us that are, you know, older um, and, so the risk, I guess, would be increased for them um, and and the perception of just, you know, not wanting to be the one that has the, the Melbourne worker sort of dine in or get through, you know, of course we're checking IDs now, <laughs> but, you know, to have that person drop in for a takeaway coffee and then, you know, who brings COVID to town sort of thing, um, that's that's a difficult um, thing to navigate in a, in a very small community as well. 
Sure. Although I feel like that cafe owner in Kilmore and 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 the other one in Shepparton, they're almost like Victorian heroes now because they'd done all the right things with their contact tracing, with taking people's records, and the contact tracing was able to happen from those venues very swiftly. And I, I mean, I feel, what can you do? You know, you can only um, be as compliant as possible and uh, do all the right things. Um, and then, you know, from that point, it's just it's either it's bad luck hey I mean I, I think hopefully we're at a we're at a point where we understand how contagious this um, coronavirus is and there aren't going to be it's going to, not going to be pushback on businesses who are unlucky enough to be affected um I mean that you mentioned the uh, the postcode or you know finding out where your diners are coming from so that is a really onerous um uh, undertaking that regional businesses have to have to do now. So you're required to ensure that none of your dine-in customers are from Metro Melbourne under um, with a penalty of a ten thousand dollar fine if you um, if you don't. So that is big. Um, how are you navigating that? Mm, yeah, sure. So um, that's just been in play what for one week of our operations now, um, and um, I'm so pleased to say that all of our customers have have just been so um, understanding um, that, that it's almost like I think it was well publicised. They were familiar that they were going to be asked, or they'd already dined at somewhere else that you know they'd show in their identification. So, um, but for us, it's still a challenge in that um, we have spatial limitations, and if we have a table of five, and we need to check each of their identifications prior to seating them, then where do we do that within our physical space? If we do that indoors, as because they generally walk in the front door, and we've got a one-way flow to the to our veranda through the side door. Um, and if a staff member is greeting um, a table, a party of five, checking their identification and then two people are, you know, get waiting for takeaway coffees and another three people walk through the door, we're, we're at maximum capacity. You know, you, you sort of have to head count constantly and um, ask people to wait outside and, you know, we, we want to welcome people. We don't want to push people back out of our door and, of course, you say it as nicely as possible and people are understanding but it's still something that's very, un, you know, it doesn't feel good and, and it's not what we want to do. Um, and then there's the added complexity of, well, one of our staff members is um, from regional Victoria, another one is out of Sydney. She's not familiar with every suburb in in Victoria, nor would I be having lived here my whole life. So we've got a cheat sheet by the counter of which suburbs are in metropolitan area. Then we've got the Know Your Council website on our point of sale at a, you know, switch over and put in a postcode if we're not sure whether they're in or out of um, metropolitan Melbourne. So, you know, it's not as easy as citing an ID um, and and just having people take the seat. So um, it's it's added a, another layer of complexity, but we're also understanding of, you know, the need for it. Um, and so we've got the um, a QR code on our menus now for and most people are doing the self-check-in and we can verify that instantly on the back end. So um, we're trying to streamline it as much as possible. Yeah, wow. There is so much to think about. All right, let's put 
um, the provador to one side and let's talk about Provenir. First of all, I want to congratulate you because you just won the Outstanding Innovation, Sustainability and Community Award at the Delicious Produce Awards. Congratulations. That's so great. Um, so tell us what Provenir is. Okay. So Provenir is um, a fully integrated meat processing company. Uh, it's the vision of myself and four co-founders who wanted to produce Australia's best beef and we do that by processing on-farm at the point of production in our mobile on-farm abattoir. So essentially instead of the animals having to be put on the back of a truck and being taken to the abattoir, we go to the farm and process them on the farm in their own environment with their own handlers, allowing them to be as calm as possible um, and, and that comes through in the quality of the meat that we produce. I just think it's so exciting that you're doing this. It's just so brilliant. I think, you know, for so many cattle, the only time they leave their farm is that final journey on a truck, on a long truck ride. And because of the consolidation of abattoirs all around the world, but let's just talk about Australia or Victoria, there's such a consolidation that there, there, there aren't um, those smaller regional abattoirs, many of those have been closed down. So the animals are trucked further. The ensuing stress, um, you know, raises raises their stress. And that's, that's as you say, like you can see that in the meat. And I think for so many farmers who care for their animals so so carefully, you know, from birth to push, putting them onto a truck, it's just not, it's just, it breaks that chain. And I know that it's, it's it, farmers don't want don't want that. They don't want that to be the final. They don't want to lose control of of the of their animal and and the and the meat quality. But they put all that work into it uh, to let go at that final point is just distressing for everybody, you know, people and animals alike. So I think it's just so fantastic. Um, it, how long has the journey been in getting Provenir up and going? Um, for me personally, it's been about seven years. So it's, um, we're now into our 16th month of operations. We launched in New South Wales and we gained our um, licence to operate in New South Wales in June of um, 2019 and then um, a couple of two months or so ago in Victoria as well. So we're now, which was luckily achieved in Victoria. We're processing on Victorian farms in our home state now. Um, and so for me, seven years ago, I was working with um, some regional producers. Um, they were selling direct to customers and I was helping them to promote their product and sell direct. And, and it's exactly that, um, the consolidation of abattoirs that I heard um you know these farmers talk about some of them you know they they were reliant on one processor they had to transport their stock a long way to get to that processor and their business was really hinged on on something it was very fragile um together with that I actually um I, I live in the bush out in Evansford and so we can't raise a lot of animals but because the the space we have available to us we Actually, my partner, Christopher Howe, also co-founder of Provenir, is a chef and he, he cooks. I love growing food. So I decided I wanted to raise some pigs. And um, so we, we raised the pigs, we foraged for them and we um, 
fed them up and then the day came when it was time to slaughter them. Um, I was greatly inspired by Matthew Evans and the episode that he did on Gourmet Farmer of like how to kill a pig and we basically followed, um, you know, that episode as a, a rule book and um, we're out here in the bush. Um, we live off-grid so we had limited space in refrigeration and that type of thing. So, to, to kill a pig, um, you, you need a lot of space to store that meat if you're going to refrigerate it or freeze it down. So we decided to go with a lot of the traditional hanging techniques that Matthew um, talks about on that episode. We process those pigs on farm and I, I witnessed firsthand the that transition from I'm getting chills, <laughs> sorry, I, I witnessed that, you know, I'd fed these pigs, I'd cared for these pigs their whole life and I witnessed that transition between life and death and then the process of them becoming meat um, and that careful balance, that care that you spoke about before of the farmers who raised the cattle for provenia, that's exactly what I felt about these pigs. You know, I'd, I'd t- tended to them every day. I'd cared for them for their entire life. Um, I, the, the death was the most swift they didn't know it was coming and the meat that we experienced, it was so hard to explain the, how just how good it was and um, it's very hard to know whether you're putting your own bias on it because of the connection that you have to that animal and that meat. Um, but we'd, you know, have friends over for dinner and feed them a dinner of our, our pork or, you know, we made prosciutto and lomo and pancetta and and everyone agreed that, that the meat was just incredible. And so that's where the, the questioning began for me of why can, why can everyone not have this experience? Why can't we process animals at the point of production, eliminating that stress and, and just having the most pure product just as we intended to raise it as meat, um, it's almost like we raise these animals to this point of being the best they can and then we put them on a truck and the the degradation starts, the adrenaline goes, the, the cortisol, and it, it's it's not how it should be. So that's where, for me, the journey of Provenia began. Wow, that's really such a powerful tale. So um, given that you had that revelation with pigs, why did you start with cattle with Provenia? (laughs) Sure. So um, there's a long time between my experience with the pigs and then I guess getting started with Provenia. Um, We we met with fellow co-founders. We went through an amazing program called SproutX, which is an ag tech accelerator ran out of Melbourne. We raised capital. We um, looked at the business case for a mobile abattoir because, you know, this was our ideal to process on farm to produce the best quality of meat. But, you know, it was never going to happen if the business wasn't sound and sustainable. Um, the reason that we went into beef was be- initially was because it provided the best opportunity for carcass utilisation for um, processing that animal and then being able to supply that pro- 
product um, into, um, you know, the restaurants, retailers and direct to consumers that we do. Um, pigs have added complexity of skinning um, the, or de-hairing the animal. Um, we are a, um, the, the unit itself is like a, a, a micro abattoir on wheels in a big semi-trailer with a um, mobile cool room um, piloted up alongside it that the the um, cattle uh, walk onto and are, are stunned and slaughtered and dehydrated and processed um, and halved and then put into a mobile cool room. If we had a, had to add the complexity of um, dehairing, it would it would be yeah another we'd love to get there one day and I was just speaking to a free-range pig producer yesterday and she was asking whether we did pigs and I said I'm so sorry but we don't yet but you know maybe one day down the track so but our next um aside from cattle we we do hope to one day move into lamb um that's that's probably been put a bit on the back burner due to COVID um and again there there's sort of this um Oh, I guess a throughput, you know, we would have to process a lot more lamb to um, to make it all work, yeah, because we have, you know, a crew of four people on site and it's a, it's a big operation <laughs> that we run, a big, small operation. <laughs> How many cattle can you put through at a time? So we're, probably, we're doing around 15 per day. It depends on the size of the cattle themselves um, and, and how long it takes to move them through the process. Um, and then also the other limitation is the, the cool room, the mobile cool room that we um, use to transport them from the on-farm location back to our central butchery hub, which is based in Bannockburn, Victoria. So they then get unloaded there and um, run through um, you know, the hanging process and through the butchery and, and through to our um, restaurant partners and retailers. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. So glad that you've been recognised with that award. I think it's just something that a lot of people have thought about, you know, foodways generally and meat supply more specifically through COVID. We've had cause to question uh, more closely where our food comes from. Can you talk a little bit about you know what you're doing and 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 I suppose our abattoir and food systems in general and how that fragility has been exposed through the pandemic mm, yeah um well it's been interesting because meatworks have been in the news and there has been a few outbreaks there we are a fairly small team and we've been largely unaffected apart from you know just having to put in extra protocol around a COVID safe workplace um but it We've had from the very start a lot of interest from consumers um, mainly but also chefs sort of um, w wanting to know where that food is coming from and that's something that um, our name is Provenia. Um, it's derived from the word provenance. We're all about capturing that provenance on the farm but then also linking the um, farmer with the people that eat that meat as well. So we've actually... Um, developed a traceability system that we um, based on QR codes essentially and um, so a QR code is generated at the point of um, that slaughter and um, that is then translated onto the packaging of the meat that goes out to the restaurant or goes out to the consumer um, and what's behind that QR code, aside from the technical sort of traceability, is um, the ability for us to tell the 
story of where that food comes from. So we um, go to the farms, we're working on the farms, we're seeing what our farmers are doing. We're all about supporting farmers that are regenerative farmers, um, that are, um, you know, looking after their land in the best possible way that we know. They're utilising cattle to actually store carbon in the soils um, through cell grazing. And so we we want to connect the – our idea was, you know, we want to we, – we're producing on farm, so we want to celebrate that provenance and provide that provenance to the consumer. One thing that we didn't realise, and you touched on it before, with regards to how the farmers feel about putting their cattle on a truck – the farmers have come back to us with feedback about how good it feels for them to have the name of their farm on the label or they might be on Instagram themselves and they'll get a notification from a consumer who's just eaten their beef and has posted a picture of their meal and tagged the farmer because they've found them via the QR code. And so we're actually connecting the farmer with the consumer and the consumer with the farmer. And there's a lot more ideas behind that that I've got of how I want to make that connection stronger but it's it's budding and it's it's there and it's it's just incredible for us to be in the middle sort of facilitating that provenance oh just yeah it's giving me chills I just think that's so beautiful and I think if there's one thing that we really should come out of this pandemic with it's a sense of our connection and all those different webs that we can create that draw us closer together and make us realize how much we rely on one another and and the land that we live on in with um and we yeah we just need strong local food systems to survive thrive and you know knit our community I think you're you're such I think about all the things that must go through your mind on an average day Jane you've got so much going on (laughs) and I just think when when you're talking about the QR codes I think about you then back in the in the eatery and just when when someone's when you're thinking about contact it's like taking customer contact details you're like QR codes I got that nail don't worry about that <laughs> oh look, it's it's been a massive learning curve. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm actually a photographer. That's my background. I the hospitality thing was new to me and certainly never dreamed that I'd be, you know, a co-founder on a startup company that launched Australia's first mobile abattoir. But you know, we follow these paths of passion and and this is where we end up. <laughs> wow. It's really, yeah, it is really incredible. You do not know where the road is going to take you. Uh, I am glad that the road has taken me to this conversation and chatting to you today, Jane. Is there anything um, that you want to say before we say our sad goodbye? Oh, look, I think just, um, you know, I, you've, I don't know what to say, Um Look, just get out there and support your local producers, support your local eateries and restaurants and and the people in the hospo industry. Um, you know, we're, I'm probably talking to the converted. We're, we're in it. We're working in it. But um, where possible, just keep supporting local. That's all. Yeah, we, we will. So uh, thank you so much, Jane Newgreen. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've learned so much and I cannot wait to get to Talbot. Um, whether or not there's the um, the Thai eggs or not, maybe there'll be some great lamb, maybe there'll be some proven, provenir beef, but I know that it's going to be a beautiful, warm welcome and I will 
show you my driver's license. I will follow all the rules and I'll sit where you tell me to um, and I'll tip big. So thanks so much for um, visiting me at Dirty Linen today. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Danny, for having me on. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>